We put a lot of thought into and are intentional about names. Expectant parents spend quite a bit of time during the pregnancy reflecting on what they will name their child. When I googled baby name books on Amazon, thousands of results were generated. Sometimes we're looking to emphasize the generational connection, thinking about folks in our families, parents and grandparents, aunts and uncles, that we want to honor by giving our child their name. Recently, there was quite a bit of press around the fact that Prince Harry and Meghan Markle named their new daughter Lilibet Diana, emphasizing their relationship both to Queen Elizabeth and Princess Diana. Sometimes we're influenced by what's currently popular in society. In the 2020s, names beginning with A are having a moment, led by Ava and Amelia and Arlo and Atticus. Equally important, there is the desire to avoid giving a name that has an infamous connotation. You will not find Adolf on any list of top baby names. And you got to feel bad for Karen, which has been set back by the current association with entitled women behaving badly. Finally, there is the work of looking at the proposed full name from all angles to try and ensure that there are no unfortunate nicknames that might emerge. I have a friend whose daughter is expecting their first child, a son, and they thought they had landed on Timothy James. But when it was pointed out that their son might end up going by Timmy Jimmy, it was back to the drawing board. We give all of this thought to choosing names because names are important. They're not only important in terms of our self-image and our identity, but in terms of our reputation. We go to great lengths to protect our names. There's a whole area of the law that deals with libel, the abuse of one's name, and infringement, the unauthorized use of one's name. And how many times have folks who are associated with some sordid or illegal affair taken to the press explaining, I have to clear my name? And in today's internet-centric world, there is a whole industry of folks who do nothing but clean up your name online, such that you can curate the image that you wish your name to project. If we give this much time and thought and energy and resources to establishing and protecting our names, how much more fitting is it that God would? Today, we are looking at the commandment concerning the Lord's name. In both Exodus 20 and Deuteronomy 5, this command reads, You shall not make wrongful use of the name of the Lord your God, for the Lord will not acquit anyone who misuses his name. As Bob has mentioned previously, there's some variation in how these commands are numbered and grouped to get to our 10. Both Jews and Protestants list this injunction as the second commandment. Roman Catholics listed as the third. As we've already established, names are more than mere words. And this is true for God's people as well. In biblical stories, naming a person was a serious event. In the story of the birth of Isaac and Rebekah's twins, we're told that their first son was born red and covered with hair. And so they named him Esau, which means 
Harry. Their second son came out holding his brother's heel. And so they named him Jacob, which means he grasps the heel. Some prophets have named their children based on what, was do, what God was doing at the time. Hosea prophesied against Israel's alliance with Assyria, which he saw as a rejection of God. He compared Israel to a harlot that cheated on her husband. And to put a fine point on his argument, he named his daughter No Mercy. And then he turned around and named his son Not My People to make clear God's stance towards Israel and her unfaithful ways. And we even see the importance of this naming in the New Testament when Jesus renames Simon to Peter, using his new name to establish Peter as the rock on which the church will be built. What we also know from the biblical witness is that to name someone or something was to establish a kind of power over it. There is much significance to the story of creation where God brings each creature to Adam to be named. So out of the ground, the Lord God formed every animal of the field and every bird of the air and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called each living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all cattle and to the birds of the air and to every animal of the field. But for the man, there was not found a helper as his partner. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man and he slept. And he took one of his ribs and closed up its place with flesh. And the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. The man named his wife Eve because she was the mother of all who live. Here, Adam naming all of the creatures establishes the dominion that God gives humanity over the created order. And of course, his naming Eve is noted by those who argue that women are meant to be submissive to men. So now that we've laid the groundwork um, in regard to the significance and the power of naming, how shall we look at God's name? The definitive biblical story on God's name is that of Moses and the burning bush. God, having drawn Moses to him through this dramatic theophany, reveals his call on Moses to lead the Israelites out of slavery in Egypt to a land that God will show him. However, Moses does not think this is a good idea. And he is determined to make so many excuses and ask so many questions that God will see for himself that this is a bad idea and will find someone else. And so in the midst of this effort, Moses says to God, if I come to the Israelites and say to them, the God of your ancestors has sent me to you, and they ask me, what is his name? What shall I say to them? God said to Moses, I am who I am. He said further, thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. God also said to Moses, thus you shall say to the Israelites, the Lord, the God of your ancestors, the God of Abraham, the God of Isaac, and the God of Jacob has sent me to you. This is my name forever, and this my title for all generations. God does two things here. He pushes back on Moses' attempt to gain power over God by establishing his name. 
Moses will not set the agenda here. God will. I am who I am, smart guy, God says. You can almost hear God's tone putting Moses in his place. But the second thing God does here is quite remarkable. He follows this almost rebuke of Moses' impertinence with self-revelation. Thus you shall say to the Israelites, I am has sent me to you. The Hebrew word for I am is where we get Yahweh, translated as the Lord in most English Bibles. The name I am suggests that God is a being who is independent of everything else that exists and cannot be contained. Further, it suggests that God is a someone. And the rest of scripture goes about revealing who this someone is. I am your creator, savior, sustainer, guide, protector, healer, and comforter. This self-revelation, this giving of his name is a really intimate thing. The only way we know God's name is because he chooses to reveal it to us. We would not arrive at God's name in any other way, say through contemplation or through experience of his creation. Just as we reveal our most intimate truths to those whom we love, so God shares an intimate truth with us whom he loves. And this establishes a closer connection between us. As one commentator notes, we can get to God because God, in giving us his name, has gotten to us. But more than this, God, gifting us with the power of knowing his name, has chosen to make himself vulnerable to us. In the same way that God self-limits when he allows us to have free will, opening himself to the possibility that we might choose not to be in relationship with him. So too, God self-limits in giving us his name. Here, he opens himself to the possibility that we will misuse his name. And so, we have this commandment given by God that if we are to be in right relationship with him, we are not to trivialize this intimate revelation that he has gifted us. We are not to make wrongful use of the name of the Lord our God. Or as we've more commonly heard, we are not to take the name of the Lord in vain. So in what ways might we take God's name in vain? or make wrongful use of God's name. When we speak that which is not true in God's name, we take his name in vain. The word for this is blaspheming. But we don't talk much about blaspheming anymore these days. We think it kind of quaint. Something that we as more cosmopolitan, evolved people have relegated to the far edges of God's concern. And yet this commandment tells us that God is quite concerned with our attempts to drag his good name through the mud of our sin and deception. We make wrongful use of God's name when we appropriate him for our agendas. We have no lack of Christian groups who have become politically active under the name of God. 
We have prominent preachers and evangelists who regularly claim God's support for the issues and priorities that are their own. The hubris and lack of humility in claiming God's blessing and ordination upon their actions and words would be shocking if it wasn't so prevalent. To use God's name for support of a political platform, for victory over our enemies, either on the battlefield or on the playing field, or for divine guidance on parking spots, is to misuse God's name. And so using God's name to support or influence that which is not of God is one way that we take his name in vain. A second way we wrongfully use God's name is when we curse. Today, the names of God and Jesus are abused everywhere, a reflection of the lack of respect seen at all levels of our discourse. When we use Jesus Christ in the same space where we, we might have substituted damn or the S word or worse, we cheapen the reverence due God's name. The curse GD or GDU is a misuse of God's name, at least of which because it implies God will damn according to our wishes. Why would any person of faith use these terms? As Christians, we can watch our own language, making sure that we don't use God's name in a way that is coarse or dishonoring. And we can be prepared to take to task those who do. When we use God's name so carelessly and disrespectfully, we insult God's character. Finally, we make wrongful use of God's name when we lie under oath or break a pledge. Here we might find ourselves wandering into the territory of another commandment, but one commentator notes that this commandment regarding God's name is theocentric. It's focused on our relationship with God. The commandment that forbids false witness or lying is focused on relationship with others. As Christians, our whole lives under this commandment is a vow that should be able to be trusted. So any oath to speak and live truth in accordance with God's law is already self-evident and baked right in. When folks take oaths and make pledges in God's name, and especially then when they fail to speak or act truthfully in these oaths, they impugn the integrity of God. They make a mockery of the witness to God to which each of us is called. To use someone's name is to say something about who that person is. God's name is no different. Reverend Child says, the heart of this commandment lies in preventing the dishonoring of God. God as the source of all truth cannot be linked to falsehood and deception. When we raise God's name, we are calling the world's attention to him. Therefore, it's vital that when we raise his name, we do so in love of God, in support of God, and in honor of God. The best way to use God's name is in praise and in prayer. 
And so it seems fitting to end our time by closing with a portion of the Psalter that does just that. Blessed be the name of the Lord from this time on forevermore. From the rising of the sun to its setting, the name of the Lord is to be praised. Amen.